From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall. Coming up later in today's show, two sisters in abusive circumstances. One survives, the other does not. We're going to hear that story. We'll in fact talk with the sister who has survived her circumstances and lives to share the story of her sister. But first, UW System President Jay Rothman was in La Crosse last week, and that's when I had a chance to sit down with him uh, here on campus at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. We talked about a number of challenges facing the university system this year. Uh, The university system has uh, outlined its first tuition hike in over 10 years, but will it be enough to take care of all of the needs of the system? Uh, They're facing shrinking enrollment. Some campuses, uh, one in our area actually, a two-year campus in Richland Center no longer offering classes after this year. We're going to talk to President Rothman about all of that. Uh, He starts by outlining the challenges that he sees as opportunities for the system. I mean, I think when I think about the challenges, I step back and and really think about the opportunities that the system has to offer. When I took this job, I had grown up and had been, I'm a lifelong resident of the state, and thought about when I was applying for this job, what would the what would Wisconsin look like without the UW system? I always keep that in mind. And anytime I think about, you think about the challenge, you walk out on a campus and you see these students and you know that the future of the state is going to be strong because of the types of students and the graduates that we're producing uh, at the UW system schools, including uh, UW lacrosse. But we have our challenges. Um, you know, financially is, is one of them. Uh, we've experienced a 10-year freeze on tuition. Uh, and uh, th- that has impacted uh, our ability to compensate uh, our people at market levels, and, and that is a challenge. And we certainly have to face the challenge uh, of enrollment, um, declining numbers of high school students. But on the flip side, um, Wisconsin is in a war for talent. Um, we're not graduating enough nurses and engineers and teachers and data scientists, and that list goes on and on. If we don't solve that problem as a state, um, the state's going to be hurt economically. And that's one of the focal areas of our strategic plan is to look at how we increase the number of graduates. So it is driving a higher participation rate, meaning the number of high school students, graduates that are going on to higher education. Wisconsin has the lowest rate of any state around us, lower than Minnesota, lower than Iowa, lower than Illinois, lower than Indiana, and lower than Michigan. That's not good for the state. We've got to change that. Uh, We've got to do a better job of making sure that college remains affordable. Uh, for regardless of what your socioeconomic circumstances are. Education can be the great equalizer. That's a challenge for us kind of going forward. But I view all of these as opportunities, opportunities to make the state stronger. The UW system schools are here to support the state of Wisconsin. That's what our mission is. That's what we want to do. When you think like that big picture perspective on the whole system, which is, of course, your job, uh, I I see a, a potential forest and trees uh, conflict uh, is how, how much does being able to drill down to the individual needs of a specific campus like UW Lacrosse inform what you're trying to do on a big system level? I, I, the, the, the whole is, is a component and is really a, a combination and aggregation of the parts. Each of the universities, each of the 13 universities play an important and critical role in the state. 
And the great thing that we have is that we've got 13 chancellors that really work well together. Uh, we spend a lot of time with each other. We talk about system-wide issues, uh, but there are also individual university issues that come up throughout all of that. But quite frankly, those universities working together is really the strength of the system. Uh, they're not uh, one, it's not just UW-Lacrosse and UW-Whitewater and UW-Eau Claire, whoever the schools might be. They are part of the UW system, all working together to that common goal of serving the state as best we can. I've had a chance to talk to Chancellor Joe Gao uh, about the Prairie Springs Phase 2 project. Of course, Phase 1 completed some years ago now, uh, and, and now the campus is ready for Phase 2, uh, waiting to see if the funding can, can be approved. Talk about uh, how, how you prioritize uh, as, as a system which of those projects you're going to really push for in a given year. Not everything can be funded all at once, obviously. Correct. And what we do, go, we go through a very rigorous and disciplined process at the system, looking at expected graduates, uh, what the needs are of any particular school, and then we rank them in terms of building projects across the system. So our ranking system that we recommend to the Board of Regents factors in all of those things, looking at allocations across, uh, across the state. Uh, and Prairie Springs is, is ranked very high in that it's number two in terms of the projects ac across the state. And we are going to continue to push for its funding. I think it's critical. When you think of a science building and you think of you know, the number of students going into the sciences and going into healthcare, both of which are key areas for UW Lacrosse, it is important that in order for us to turn out a world-class education, we have to have state-of-the-art facilities. And, and right now, quite frankly, um, we can do better. Uh, at, at La Crosse than we've done. Uh, the existing f facility is, is dated. There's no question about that. Uh, we have to do better. Um, and I think that's why Prairie Springs Phase 2 is as high on the priority list as, as it is. And we are going to do our best to, to ensure that it gets enumerated in this biennium. The challenges that you talked about, the opportunities uh, to do better, include funding and and some of that uh, some of that comes along with some tough decisions I'm thinking of of the uh, the campus at Richland Center which is offering its last semester of classes um, as we speak what can the system do uh, since there's not enough viability there to keep that specific campus open what can the system do to make sure that students in that area who would otherwise have taken advantage of the opportunities on that campus don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, no, and, and I think we're, we're doing a lot of things along those lines. For, first of all, um, you know, R Richland was down to, it was gonna be down to less than 50 students after, after midterm graduations, and it was no longer fair for the students uh, as a practical matter in terms of giving them the experience, nor was it economically viable to have in-person academic instruction there. We're having very constructive conversations with the folks in Richland uh, County right now about what our presence will be on an ongoing basis. Uh, those conversations are including the local tech schools lo uh, involving local community leaders. So I think that's, that's point one. Uh, and point two is really that the students that were at the Richland um, uh, County uh, extension uh, have been offered uh, the, the, no change in, the, in their tuition that they would have been paying at Richland versus what they would pay if they went to Platteville or, or the other uh, branch campus associated with UW-Platteville, which is uh, the, the Baraboo location, also getting a housing stipend. So we wanted to make sure those students continued. I think the next step beyond that is to, to continue to recruit. We've got other schools that are 
within uh, similar within uh, reasonable distances one would hope uh, to make sure that they continue to go one of the things we're doing um, and to the extent that students are financially it is a challenge is we have proposed the Wisconsin tuition promise that would offer basically take tuition off the table for any student who's coming from a family of $62,000 in annual income or less. Um, and it's modeled after Bucky's tuition promise, which is a very successful program at UW-Madison, trying to extend that to all of the other 12 uh, universities within the system. The system will fund it for the first year. We've asked for legislative support thereafter. My hope is that the legislature will support that as a means that will help students that may have been otherwise dislocated due to the decision that we had to make, um, regretfully so, but it was, I continue to believe it was the right decision as it related to the Richland campus. After the decade-long freeze that you mentioned in tuition, uh, campuses are looking at uh, an increase, on average increase of 4.2% uh, next year for the first, first increase in 10 years. What goes into deciding um, what what that increase should be. I know a lot of people uh, shun any increase of anything ever, um, but some people might have expected an even bigger increase after a 10-year layoff. What we looked at were a variety of different factors. We really have two goals. We want to make sure that we remain affordable. We did an affordability study uh, last fall, or last summer, I should say, and we discovered, not surprisingly, that we were very affordable um, and uh, the best value of any public university system in the Midwest. This tuition increase is not going to change that. We will still be the best uh, value uh, of any public university system in the Midwest. That was an important component. But we also have to look at the quality of education and financial sustainability. Um, we have to be able to pay our, our faculty and our staff at market levels. Uh, and we're not doing that right now. We've asked for more support from the state. Um, in the biennium, we've asked for 4% and 4%. Uh, we've asked for tuition increase and, and, uh, and housing and room and board increases that get us to about 4.2% on average. That means we're going to have to do stuff on the expense side, too. A inflation was 8%. Last year, it's running at 6% this year. That means that these, these increases are not going to cover our increased cost of operations. So we have to look for ways that we can be more efficient, and we have to be good financial stewards both on the revenue line and on that expense line. I came out of the private sector. I understand what that has to be in order to make this work. We have to balance those two out. So we're looking at expanding shared services, uh, which reduce the cost for each individual university. We're looking for greater collaboration among the universities. We're looking at adjusting our program array to fit the demands of what our employers and what our students want. We're continuing to take those actions to make sure we can deliver as much and as efficiently as we can while at the same time increasing our revenue at some level and trying to find a fair balance so that we can maintain affordability and maintain quality of education for the long run. Jay Rothman is the president of the University of Wisconsin System. Thank you very much, President Rothman. Uh, it was my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. If you would like to hear this conversation again, you can find it on our website, which is wpr.org newsmakers. That's wpr.org newsmakers. Coming up after this, the harrowing stories. Uh, two different sisters caught in abusive circumstances. One survives, the other does not. The surviving sister shares her story with us and find out how you can hear her story in person coming up in La Crosse next week. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio.
From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in our southwestern Wisconsin studios on the campus of UW-La Crosse. And I'm joined now uh, by two guests to talk about uh, an event coming up called Take Back the Night. And, uh, and, and uh, it's sort of spearheaded by uh, a group called Level Up and their executive director, Tom Burkdahl, is with us uh, once again on Newsmakers. Tom, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And uh, the keynote speaker at that event is, is Janine Latis, who is a speaker and author uh, of a book called If I'm Missing or Dead. And we're going to ask her about the title of that book and its story and find out a little bit about her, her own life and her own story as well. Welcome to Newsmakers, Janine. Thank you so much, Ezra. First of all, we're tra- we're talking about. Let me set the stage with with uh, the event. Uh, take back the night, Tom. Before before we get into Janine's story, talk just very briefly about what take back the night is and and when it is uh, coming up. So actually, uh, level up the organization I'm involved with is bringing Janine in next week. She's going to make seven different appearances in lacrosse while she's here. Uh, Take Back the Night is one of them, and we're doing that in conjunction with the Violence Prevention Program at UW-La Crosse. I really have to give them a lot of credit uh, for the organization of this event because um, they're doing all the hard work. You know, we're just uh, bringing Janine in and and making her available. So uh, kudos to Blythe and all the people that she works with at Violence violence Prevention. Janine will also be speaking uh, to three different high schools in town, uh, Central, Logan, and Aquinas their entire student bodies, and uh, to a group of Rotarians uh, at our own a- an annual uh, call to action event that we can talk about a little bit later, uh, and also to a group of medical professionals in town uh, on a whole kind of different topic. But it's we're so excited to uh, have Janine coming in. It's been a, well, we've been planning this since I think 2019, uh, and then COVID hit and we kept having to postpone it. So it's great to finally have her Coming to lacrosse next week. Well, and, and we'll find out more about uh, about the specifics uh, and, and opportunities that our audience might have to to check in on on the events that would be appropriate for them. Um, Janine, now I I, I want to turn to uh, to your story. It is um, it is fascinating and harrowing, and and we should provide a content warning for people ahead of time. This this will involve frank discussions about uh, sexual violence, intimate partner violence, things related to that. So, so uh, with, with that caveat, I, I, I want to ask you, uh, first of all, just, just about your life, just about growing up. What was it like being, being part of your family, brothers and sisters and so on? Thanks for asking, because family of origin really matters when you're talking about victims of sexual assault, domestic violence. Um, so I was raised in a pretty typical home from the era, and uh, there was a long tradition of of uh, what my father would hypersexualize his daughters. Everything was about either you know the only thing you're valuable for, or if you give it up, then you're worthless. You're done. It's over, and that mindset stuck in our heads and it had an enormous impact on me and my youngest sister amy and you know when i give these talks i talk about this idea that what happens in the home stays in the home and how we model for our children what healthy behavior looks like 
And in my childhood home, there was not healthy modeling. There was very much a dominant parent and there was a lot of humiliation. There was a lot of um, inappropriate behavior that made Amy and me both go out into the world looking for love that probably you and I wouldn't now call love. You talked about your some of your father's comments and uh, and attitudes. Uh, do you uh, w- was this some sort of perverse uh, sense of humor that he thought he was conveying, or were these like serious, uh, like comments that that he he meant for you to really take to heart? I would put three things. One was um, he was serious, and we don't know why because his siblings did not parent their children that way. He thought it was funny and he used to say things like, you're a latest, you're supposed to have a sense of humor or you're overreacting or I didn't say that or you you know, it would go on and on all of this denial that so that your own experience doesn't feel like the truth anymore because somebody's gaslighting you yeah. and telling you that something that's not the truth is the truth. And then the third thing was, you know, power and control. My dad had power over us if he made us feel gross. And and so he used it. Hmm. Later in, in your experience, while you were still living at home, uh, you experienced that sort of, that taste of someone trying to become abusive toward, or becoming abusive toward you. And at least in, in one of the instances that I heard you convey, you were able to get away that first time. Right. And Ezra, you can't tell this because, you know, we're talking on the radio, but yeah. I'm five one. And, okay. you know, if you're going to, if you're the dad of the kids I'm babysitting and you're going to pin me down and you're going to try to sexually assault me, physically, you have a big advantage over me because I am small and I was smaller then. Um, yeah. So the first time I was sexually assaulted, I was 12 and babysitting and the, the dad I was able to get away from him by taking hold of the little hairs on the back of his neck and yanking until he left me. Um, But as people who attend these events are going to hear, what made that situation even worse is that when I went home and I told my parents what had happened, my father told me to keep the secret, to never tell anyone or they would know that I was a slut. And the thing is, is we know that that same man sexually assaulted 12 girls that we found out within 24 hours of trying to find the answer. A couple of years ago, we found 12 girls he had sexually assaulted. And each one of them, their parents had said, keep it a secret. And if my parents had told me to speak out, then it might not have happened to Karen or Sandy or Debbie. Wow. With that piece of advice, you could stop the show right there, having learned an important lesson about speaking out. But uh, f- not to spoil your entire story, but speaking out is is not what happened because of your father's actions that night. Not only did you not speak out about that, but you you became a person who just didn't sp- didn't speak out. Th- the other times that it happened either. Like, do you think that you became conditioned not, not to speak out or, or do you think that you, that that experience taught you to believe that you had to be quiet about these things as they unfortunately continued to happen to you? Let's, let's combine the two. Okay. Okay. 
don't talk about being the victim of sexual assault. You're overreacting. Where's your sense of humor? And then the whole overlay of what were you wearing and why were you there with that person? And in other words, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And you learn that the only safe thing to do is to stay as quiet as possible about it and basically suck it up, buttercup. Because, you know, okay, so you were stranger raped, which statistically is incredibly unlikely. And yet you're stranger raped and you keep it a secret because what will people think of you if you tell the truth? And then far more common in the, you know, 80 to 85% of the time, the person who sexually assaults you is, is, is in your people, right? They're your friend, they're your, your family member, they're your uncle. And um, in my case, to be clear, none of my uncles sexually assaulted me. But, um, you know, the idea that it's, it's the people in your world who are doing it to you means you just keep it a secret because of the idea that what happens in the home stays in the home. You've talked about experience, experiences uh, not only with, uh, you, you mentioned being stranger raped, which is, as you said, somewhat rare, but also uh, there, there was uh, abuse later in, in relationships, uh, including, including someone that you were married to. How, how did that situation, how was that different than a sexual assault uh, situation because I, there, there, there's that Venn diagram overlaps a lot, but there are differences between people who experience uh, certain kinds of sexual assault and people who experience like intimate partner violence uh, in in some ways. There's a Venn diagram in that, for example, if you're sexually assaulted, you are far more likely to accept an abusive relationship because at some level you're more likely to believe you deserve it. Because, you know, as anybody who comes to attend any of these events is going to hear me talk about, it's this spectrum of coercive control where they try to control you in various ways going forward. And it starts out relatively incremental and it grows. But by the time it becomes physical violence, you sort of feel like you deserve it because nobody else will ever want you. And you're lucky I want you and you're stupid and you're fat and you're ugly. And I'll take the kids and you'll never see him again. I mean, they, they, they mess with your head to such a level that being punched is just part of, that's just one more thing. When that began to happen to you, how, how long into your relationship were you? So you're talking about my marriage, but prior to my yeah, marriage, okay. I had, and by the way, it's a former marriage. I am no longer in that marriage. I had been rescued by my husband from a person I was dating who had physically battered me to the level of my nose and ribs being broken. And so when my husband swooped in and was just Prince Charming and was going to any, do you know what the phrase love bomb means? I'm not familiar. To love bomb somebody is to just ladle it on, you know, just ladle it on until they're just awash with all of these positive, loving feelings. And then once they're kind of addicted to that dopamine, endorphin, whatever combination, then you start uh, using whatever they've confessed to you against them. So for example, let's say that you said to me, I'm self-conscious about my feet. Since we're on radio, there's no way I can see your feet. So this is right. definitely not about you. Yeah. Then 
your love bombing sweetheart says, I know you're self-conscious about your feet. I could get your feet shortened. Or I know you're self-conscious about your feet, but you know what? I love you even though you have those feet. So now imagine if it's something more substantial, like, you know, something, they know the secret, they know you've been raped, they know you've been beaten, and they have that information, and they use it to manipulate you. That's the kind of love bombing that turns it from like giddy early romance to now it's becoming dangerous. They're using what you have, the vulnerabilities you've exposed to control you in some way. The irony isn't lost on me that the person that you ended up marrying and then having to escape from a relationship uh, with uh, was the person who rescued you from your previous abusive relationship. Does it often happen that way to people? Yes. And there are two reasons. Um, so when I say there are two reasons, there are two reasons I know about. I talk to a lot of people in this industry, and therefore I absolutely get a lot of feedback from a bunch of people. But one of the things is what I refer to as a failure to take a dating sabbatical. So you don't take time off to figure out you're okay by yourself. And therefore you're in this next relationship and you're terrified of being alone. And so you keep putting up with stuff in order to not be alone. Cause we as a culture are really big on, if you're alone, there must be something wrong with you. So there's that, but there's also this idea of a model of what love looks like. So if love to you is like, we are crazy in love. Oh my God, we're in love. We're in love. We're in love. We're in love. Oh no, we're fighting. We're fighting. We're fighting. I've got to get back up. I've got to get back up to in love. Now, healthy love looks more like kind of a, an, a wavy line, you know, where there are days that are really great and days that are, that are kind of blah, but they're, you know, but there's no massive chemical dump that says, you know, this is what love looks like. And if you are raised in a home where that's volatile, that has high drama love, you think that's what love looks like. If you have an early high drama relationship, you think that's what love looks like. And so then you try to replicate it in future relationships. So instead of you know having the secure, balanced partner, you know, who you talk to somebody else of the gender that you're attracted to, and your partner's like, oh good, you have a new friend. You look at that and you go, no, you're not jealous. You must not love me. I'm going to do something else until you are jealous because I want you to love me. And so that's part of why it repeats is because we pattern what we think love looks like. So if high drama love is your idea of love, then healthy love is going to not look like love. Janine Latus is our guest today on Newsmakers. Uh, Tom Berkdahl is here. He's executive director of an organization called Level Up. And uh, they've uh, brought Janine uh, into lacrosse this week. Uh, and and I'm really uh, interested, Tom, because uh, not just Janine, but other guests that you've brought into town uh, have, have been welcomed into high schools here in town to have these important conversations with our youth. And, and I'm wondering, uh, as, as part of your mission about s spreading the word about this important subject matter, how, how has that uh, outreach to schools been received? I'm just so, I feel so fortunate to live in a community like La Crosse that takes on issues like this and gets people like Janine in front of young people. You know, when, when I look back at our previous events, uh, probably 90% of the audiences that we've had have been young people, you know, college age, uh, high school age, middle school age. You know, we, we believe 
that this these types of topics need to be extended to young people at as early an age as possible because stuff happens in middle school that maybe didn't happen as much when uh when we're going through and uh the 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 students themselves have been great you know we we had an event last year we brought in a speaker and and uh, he spoke to logan central and aquinas also and uh one of the principals told me that it was the first event that they had since covid hit and they weren't quite sure how the students were going to react mm -hmm. and they're a little bit nervous about that but in each school that we went to you could hear a pin drop it was it was just amazing and, and typically at the end of our events a number of, of students come up and talk to the speaker and they have private conversations that are extremely uh, meaningful and um it's just been something that that uh, has really resonated in this community. Janine was just talking about uh, something that happened to her uh, when she was 12. So I guess if if you think your kid is too young to hear this kind of material and protect themselves against it, think again. One of the things that you do with students is uh, there's an opportunity to take a pledge uh, related to sexual violence uh, and, and related to uh, uh, treating people appropriately. Talk about that pledge and, and talk about uh, your experience uh, helping students to take it. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, it's actually a pledge that's on our website, and our website is at leveluplacrosse, all one word, leveluplacrosse.org. And on that site, there's a place where you can take a pledge. And uh, the pledge states, I pledge to never commit, condone, or remain silent about acts of domestic violence or sexual assault. Uh, last year at each of our presentations, we had students go onto our site and uh, and take the pledge if they chose to do so. And uh, it's really the first year we, we were able to do that coming out of COVID. We had over 800 young people in town take that pledge uh, after our events last year. And uh, we're going to be doing that again this year. Actually, I think we would have had a few more, except we kept crashing our website you know, at, at the end of every event. You know, so... Um, Again, you know, we're we're just very happy with the way that, happy with the way our programs have been received, and and I, I know that Janine's is going to be just amazing. We are talking to uh, to Janine Latus and Tom Burkdahl on Newsmakers today. If you'd like to reach out to our show anytime throughout the week, you can always you can always find me on email. Uh, send it to newsmakers at wpr.org. That's newsmakers at wpr.org. Our program continues in just a moment. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in La Crosse. Thank you for joining us. It's an important discussion we're having today about sexual violence and intimate partner violence. It's all leading up to uh, a, a series of events in lacrosse, including uh, an event called Take Back the Night, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Uh, we've been talking to Janine Latus, who's a, a speaker and author. Uh, her book is called If I Am Missing or Dead. I should point out, Janine is a very accomplished journalist uh, and uh, has written many other things, uh, journalism-related, and you can find all that on her, on her website. But her book, If I'm Missing or Dead, it comes from a very personal uh, story, not not uh, directly her story, but her sister's. Janine, where does that title come from? 
I wish I couldn't answer this question. Mm-hmm. I really, really, really wish I couldn't. Um, the book actually is both my story and my sister's story. And it it is deliberately crafted to weave the stories the way family relationships can weave, meaning it's all about me until it's Thanksgiving and then I get to see her or we have a phone call or it's her birthday or it's Christmas. And so that that that's, you know, coming in and out of each other's lives and the truths we tell and the truths we don't tell are all part of this because Amy and I were going through parallel experiences, even though our lives looked completely different. I was um, married to a doctor, living in a big house, you know, a fitness instructor on TV. My sister was a secretary um, until the last year of her life, um, obese enough to be um, very limited by that obesity. And yet we were both accepting the same behavior from our partners. And in her case, um, I guess the way to tell you this is that um, I got a phone call and they had found a note taped to the inside of her desk drawer at work. And it said, if I am missing or dead, pick up Ron Ball. And Ron Ball was her live-in boyfriend. And she had been missing for four days, but the letter was dated 10 weeks prior So for 10 weeks, she was afraid. And for 10 weeks, she didn't tell anybody. Mm. If you come to any of my events, I always wear a T-shirt that says we need to talk. Because again, this idea that what happens in the home stays in the home, I got my sister killed. If she had felt like she could have told the truth, our family would have just come down there, you know, in a deluge of, nope, you're out of here. We'll pick you up like a you know, a piece of firewood and carry you out the door if we have to, but we are taking you out. And she did not call. Did you have any idea that she was, that she at this point or any other point was experiencing some of the same things that, that you had experienced? We had clues that, that uh, it was an unhealthy relationship. We did not know it was physically violent, but also each of us had pieces, tiny pieces. So she never told anybody a comprehensive story And in order to not uh, butt into her business, we hadn't gotten on a group phone call and said, what have you heard? Because we didn't know. And so we couldn't. But then in retrospect, we started sharing. I heard this. She said that. And, uh, you know, then the pieces started to fall into place. During this time, you had, um, I don't know the specific 10 weeks, but at least during uh, during your time, troubles you had shared some of the details of your life with her right yeah and and she had at at no point said anything like oh yeah i totally understand because that happens to me right nope none of that happened and i had told her more than she had told me but um one of my sister's fears in life was to be the family mess up and um so she was keeping the mistake And the mistake is she chose a man who turned out to be awful. Um, And so she was keeping that a secret. And I was in a position where I didn't have to do that. And so I was telling more than she was telling. I mean, it's a weird thing because I could see things in her life that I was saying, you know, this is not good. You should not be living with this. And she was seeing things in my life. But at some level, we weren't each seeing it in our own lives. And when I was finally ready to get out... I said to Amy, 
um, you know, this, this, this. And she said, I've been telling you. And I said, yeah, but Amy, I'm ready now. Because until the victim is ready, there's really a limit to how much you can say or do that could move that person. I'm, I'm wondering about your, your sister's uh, perpetrator. Uh, what, what what happened in that circumstance? How long was it before he was caught? Because her note said, if anything happens to me, look for this guy right away. Well, first we had to find her. And she was in Tennessee under the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he evaded police for quite a while. And eventually, um, my sister worked for the Kimberly Clark Corp- Corporation, ironically, the makers of Kleenex. And uh, they had put up a reward for information. And the murderer's brother lived in Montana. So the murderer was taking a bus to Montana to hide out at his brother's. And his brother had already called in for the reward. Now, to his credit, he refused the reward. But the reward is what made him aware of what was going on. And U.S. Marshals boarded a bus in Arkansas and dragged the murderer off and took him back to Tennessee. And eventually he was found guilty and he served time and then he got out you're a, a journalist as i mentioned earlier in the program and and not that not that journalists don't become uh, emotionally attached to the things that they write or or take an interest in the outcome of things or anything like that but it isn't the same as writing about your your own life all the time. When you decided to write about these events of yours and your sister's experiences, how how did you approach that as as someone who is typically able to talk about facts and research and putting things into context for people and and uh, not hopefully not devoid of emotion, but but not something that is so specifically tied up with your own well-being uh i did it in public i did it in public so i had a small child and i would walk her to elementary school and she would ride a scooter and then i would ride that scooter to the coffee shop because fun fact if you're a writer and you do something eccentric people are like well she's she's a writer i mean you can you can do all kinds (laughs) of weird stuff and so i would go to the coffee shop and I would work in public because if I had to deal with this by myself, I would be, still be hiding behind the radiator. So I, I would write. And it'd be funny because I would be sitting there in my little cone of silence. and There'd be tears running down my face. And the regulars would tell everybody else, leave her alone. She's writing a book. And, uh, you know, I did it entirely in scenes. So I would write. I would be working on a scene and if it became too difficult, either because of craft or emotion, I would close that scene and I would open another scene until I got the requisite number of words for that day. Because sometimes it was so grueling and so horrifying that the idea of placing another detail wasn't okay for my mental health. And I really, really needed to stay okay or I would never be able to finish this thing. Was there, uh, in addition to the value of helping other people by sharing your story, uh, was was there value to you as someone who has experienced this? The, like the process of writing it was that was that uh, uh, helpful or hurtful in your own recovery from in your own process of finding uh, a way through these events? Remaining vertical in life, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, it was cathartic, and it was also uh, almost. Uh, 
you know how when the brain hamsters are going in your head and you keep ruminating over the same thing over and over and over again, but if somebody wrote it in a book, maybe if they put it in a piece of fiction, you would be able to see it loud and clear. This is abusive behavior or whatever. By writing it down, I was able to recognize that I wasn't overreacting, that it wasn't that I didn't have a sense of humor. It was this really validly happened. And I have uh, a friend of mine who is Jewish and he was at the Holocaust Museum and he was watching the timeline because his grandfather's generation had escaped the Nazis. And he was watching the timeline and he would see something and he'd say, go now, grandpa, grandpa, go now, go now, as it kept you know, getting more and more dangerous. And he said, when he read my book, he kept having that same experience. That's that's abuse, Janine. You need to go now. Get out now. Mm -hmm. And yet I stayed until it had escalated to a point where it was super dangerous. And I wrote the book specifically that way, because if I identify a behavior as abusive that you think is normal, then I've lost you. You're not paying attention to me anymore. And I need you to decide what is abusive behavior and at what point should I go now? Looking back at, uh, at at what you've been through, at what your sister has been through, what lessons can you take away from this uh, uh, that you can pass on to other people about things that you wish you had noticed earlier or a, a way out that you wish you had known existed or, or, or you know, th ways to recognize what kind of people are about to do things like this before you become so involved with them? There's a tool called the Duluth Power and Control Wheel, and it's a pie chart that describes, you know, sexual abuse, financial abuse, um, the various forms of power and control. And I swear to God, I tell people to print it out old school and take a highlighter and highlight everything on there that is happening in their own relationship. Because when you see that whole page turn bright yellow from your highlighter, you can't pretend anymore that these are all harmless and cute behaviors. And then, you know, I want us to talk to each other and say, hey, I saw how sad you were when your girlfriend made that joke that humiliated you. And I just want to tell you I saw it. Because the more we're able to uh, like reflect back or witness for people, the quicker they're going to recognize that they're not imagining this, that it is honest to God, bad behavior. We've talked, we're talking to Janine Latus about her, about her, uh, story and, and her sister, uh, her late sister, Amy's story as well. Tom Burkdahl is with us on Newsmakers today. Uh, he's the executor, executive director of a group in lacrosse called Level Up, which is a partnership to end sexual and domestic violence. Uh, Tom, you have uh, you have a number of speaking opportunities lined up for Janine uh, as she's visiting lacrosse. Uh, talk about uh, if if people are hearing her story and would like to see her uh, in person. What what opportunity would there be for them to do that? Well, there are actually two presentations that will be open to the public. Uh, the first will happen on Tuesday morning. It's our, our what we call our call to action event. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, an event that will be held at the Cargill Room um, uh, in downtown La Crosse. Um, it's a breakfast. Uh, it, it begins at 8 o'clock, the presentation itself. Uh, but if you can have breakfast, uh, we're going to serve people breakfast as they 
arrive uh, beginning at 7.15 a.m. Uh, there are limited tickets available at this point, um, but if anyone is interested in a ticket, they could email me. That would be the best way, actually, at this point. Um, my email address is tombblevelup at gmail.com. So it's Tom, my last initial B, Tom B, level up at gmail.com. Sorry, my mind is going blank. That will be a great event. And then we're going to have the Take Back the Night event that will be held uh, in Main Hall Auditorium on the campus of UW Lacrosse. It's in the Hesperich, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, auditorium. Um, it begins at seven o'clock and it's free and open to the public. Uh, and there's actually even free parking uh, behind the Ron Colley Newman Center. Uh, at UWL in lot C as in cat one. So uh, there's free parking, free admission. Um, and again, it's in, at Main Street Auditorium, uh, which is at 1725 State Street. Uh, that is coming up on on uh, on which day? Uh, that's on Wednesday, Wednesday at seven o'clock. And the call to action is on Tuesday, the, the 4th at 8 a.m. The presentation begins. Okay. So uh, Tuesday the fourth for the for the the morning event and and Wednesday the fifth. Tom, tell me about uh, tell me about Level Up and 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 the work uh, that your organization does. Well, Level Up is an organization I brought to Lacrosse. Um, I had lived in Lacrosse for thirty one years and uh, then lived in Appleton for sixteen years and came back to Lacrosse when I retired. Uh, while I was in Appleton, I was involved with a group called uh, Voices of Men. And they actually brought in Janine, I think it was 2018, 19 in that time frame, um, right after I had left. Um, and Voices of Men and now Level Up, uh, Level Up specifically is an organization that primarily works to educate the public on issues of domestic violence and sexual assault, but with a special emphasis on engaging men of all ages in that process. Uh, we recognize that approximately 90% of perpetrators of both domestic and sexual violence are men, uh, but we also recognize that approximately 90% of men are not perpetrators. And that's what we focus on. We focus on that 90% of men who are not perpetrators, and we encourage them, as Janine says, to speak up to police, you know, the people that are perpetrators. And uh, we think that's very important. Historically, when it comes to issues of uh, domestic violence and sexual assault, it's primarily women, you know, that have led the way, you know, to to confront and to help reduce those acts of violence. And, and it's it's been a, a large emphasis on treatment. Uh, we want to avoid the need to to have those type of agencies. You know, we want to get to a place in this country and in this world where you know uh, the men get involved and and start speaking up and and policing their own and and I think until that happens uh, it's going to be difficult uh, to bring the numbers down and that's what we want to do we want to bring the numbers down so you and Janine have both talked about speaking up uh, Janine uh, the the slogan you referenced is we need to talk not 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 just it's kind of the double meaning of like uh, you can very intimately tell somebody, look, we, we need to talk. But also, as as with with the subject matter we've been talking about today, we need to talk like everybody needs uh, to talk about what is going on so that it stops. If if someone, Tom, to your point, is is uh, not a victim 
or a survivor of this kind of behavior and is not a perpetrator of this kind of behavior, what can they best do to help uh, to help end sexual violence, intimate partner violence, uh, uh, these things that go on in our community all the time? I think the first thing you know would be to get educated, um, and that's that's we're trying to provide that education uh, as one source, but there are a lot of other sources, books like Janine's and so on and so forth. Um, you know, what I found is that most men, including myself, were are, are kind of were kind of, in my case were, was kind of clueless about these matters. I went to my first Voices of Man event and heard a speaker like Janine, and it, it you know the bell rang. I mean, I it, it I mean I immediately was involved, and uh, I became involved in a leadership position within that organization the next year um, because. For a lot of guys, you know, this type of thing is it's not on their radar. You know, it's not something that they think about every day like, you know, many women do. But what I found is that once they hear a story like Janine's, you know, they're there, you know, they're willing to help. You know, they're and, and we've seen that evidenced by the growth that we've had in in, um, you know, the numbers of people that come to see our events you know, over the years. Um, uh, it, it's it's just been incredible, and 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 I and that's kind of one of my missions is to get people like Janine in front of all people, but especially guys, um, so that they can hear that story and recognize that you know maybe there's some things that I can do about it, and you know so education I think is really key. Well, I appreciate you both being here today, uh, talking about this issue. Again, the Take Back the Night event is next week on Wednesday the fifth. Uh, on the campus of UWL. Uh, of course, uh, Janine, your uh, your uh, information is is on your website. People can find your story there, videos that you've posted, articles that you've written, and a link to purchase your book. What's that website where people can find you? JanineLatus.com. So that's J-A-N-I-N-E-L-A-T-U-S.com. Yes, you can watch video. You can watch my TEDx. You can even see me do a stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> Perfect. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us. I, I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you, Ezra. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. There are a couple of opportunities to hear our show each week. We're on Fridays at 10 uh, a.m. on the Ideas Network 90.3. We repeat Friday night at 7 on NPR News and Music 88.9. And we're always online at wpr.org newsmakers. Kate Spranger is my producer. I appreciate your help, Kate. I'm Ezra Wall. Join us again next week for another Newsmakers right here on Wisconsin Public Radio.